for the rest of us here this morning. Uh, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 6, and we're going to be in the last verse of chapter 6, going through chapter 7. Uh, if you're using the Bible and the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 706, um, but it will also be up on the screens. And once again, uh, for those of you guys online, those of you guys here uh, in person, welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you guys join us. As we regularly do, we're going to begin our time with the reading of the Bible today. And as we read, I like to give homework whenever we read, uh, but whenever we read this passage, I want you to pay careful attention to the many vivid images. Uh, I tell my kids, these are word pictures, these metaphors that Hosea uses to illustrate the sin of all of mankind. Please follow along with me, again in Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And Hosea writes this, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they're before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none calls, none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon his head, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him, for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their, the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Please join with me in prayer. Dear God, again, we come before you this morning confessing that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. As we have just sung, we recount that our sins 
are many, but your mercy is more. What a joy to know that all are welcome to know you, from from the weakest to the vilest, to the most poor, that all have been given access to know you in right relationship through the blood of Christ. And as we often do, we turn our attention to those who have not yet placed their trust in you. And we pray for our children here this morning that you have blessed us with, and we pray that they would come to know Jesus at a young age, and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Again, please grow in them a desire to know you, and we pray for all those who are serving again, all over campus, upstairs and downstairs, uh, we, for the hurting, for the sick, Lord, we especially pray for those who have recently experienced great loss. May your peace and your strength abound. And for those who are battling sickness and those who are recovering, we pray that they find comfort that only comes from you. We pray also for all the family members and the medical staff who are caring for them. Be their strength. Be their source of rest. We pray for your guidance in the frustration, in the times they feel defeat. And Lord, I pray that your joy abounds and that they feel the strength that only comes from you. Lord, we pray for our students here this morning, that you carry them through the struggles that they face day to day. And may you continually draw them to know your grace. We pray for all those who are married, those with young families, and especially those who might be struggling in their marriages. Lord, may you grant them wisdom. Again, just like this text that we've just read, reveal to them their sin, reveal to us your sin, and guide them in your grace. Restore their joy and their love for you. We pray for all the young singles, the college students, may you sustain them uh, during stressful times and help them to delight in knowing your nearness. For those who are new, visiting with us here, Lord, we pray that you guide them to experience the joy of being in your family. For those who don't know you here this morning, that they may experience the immeasurable joy of salvation in you. Lord, we pray that you guide us as we study your word this morning. In the power of Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. For those of you that might be new to the Bible, the book of Hosea can be broken up into two uneven sections. The first section, as we discussed in the very beginning of January, chapters 1 through 3, focuses on this ridiculous love story. And this love story served as this illustration of God's faithful love for his rebellious people. This is roughly 700 years before Jesus arrived in the flesh. For this, God instructed Hosea to marry an adulterous woman and to have kids with her. This was supposed to depict God's covenant faithfulness to his unfaithful people, Israel, who continued to give their love to fake God's false deities. And this scandalous marriage of Hosea was also supposed to communicate God's continued faithfulness to redeem them and the long and difficult road it would take to restore them as his people. 
The second section, which is much longer, chapters 4 through 14, seems to make this shift from Hosea living out the message, kind of acting it out, to Hosea continually declaring God's message with words like, hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, and hear this, O priests, like chapters 4 and 5 begin. So if you've been journeying with us the past few weeks, you might feel like Hosea's message is becoming overly redundant. Maybe you've even tried to read through Hosea before and you just kind of lost the will to finish because chapters 4 through 14 are just depressing. In fact, after hearing condemnation after condemnation throughout this middle section of Hosea, you're about ready to move on to some happier reading. But mind you this, a careful reading of each chapter in this section will help us see the depths of man's sinfulness, man's rebellion against God, and our ever-growing need for God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapters 6 and 7 are often preached together, even verse, or chapter 8, because they're seen as one unit. At the beginning of chapter 6, uh, Pastor Matt was preaching this last week, Hosea gave this beautiful call to repentance to the people of Israel, but instead of responding positively to this call, and because Israel was so entrenched in their sinful ways, this is the first blank for this morning, chapter 7 explains that they didn't even recognize didn't even recognize their need for God. Let me say that again. Because Israel is so entrenched in their sinful ways, chapter 7 explains that they didn't even recognize this great need that they had for God, let alone their need to even repent. The modern church today can certainly learn a lot from carefully reading these middle chapters of Hosea. The title of the sermon, again, this morning is The Unrecognized Sin. And again, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 6, verse 11, going through all of chapter 7. I want to talk about my goals this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you're even trying to search for what that means. My hope for you this morning is that you will not only witness God's past grace for his people, Israel, but that you will witness God's present grace made available for all who repent and believe. My hope is that you will be drawn to God's grace through the power of the gospel message this morning. Christian, my hope for you is that you will humbly reflect on your current pursuit of God and that you would grow in your gratitude for Christ and his church. In order for us to heed Hosea's warnings here in chapter 7, I want to highlight three characteristics of the Christian life found here in Hosea chapter 7. If you're filling in blanks in the notes, this is your cue for the next blank. The first characteristic of the Christian life according to chapter 7 of Hosea is this. The Christian's standard of sin and holiness. Again, the Christian standard of sin and holiness must be upheld according to God's word. 
We see this in chapter 6, verse 11, through chapter 7, verse 7. Paul explains later, roughly about 700 years later, that God's Word, all of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But, but what happens when Christians miss that very important clause at the end of that, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? What if they miss that? What happens when Christians don't understand God's righteous standard according to the inspired Word of God? What if they lose the handles of the faith in that, in that regard? What, what happens when Christians look to other sources of authority to define sin and to define what holiness is? We'll talk more about this throughout this morning, but simply put, when, when Christians walk away from God and walk away from the authority of His Word, it leads to spiritual confusion. It leads to ruin. When man's standard of sin is formed by, by, by society, when man's understanding of sin is, is formed by cultural norms rather than God's Word, not only will they become calloused towards their true sin, but they somehow believe that God's not paying attention. And sadly, this is most vivid during the period of the Judges, 14th to 11th century BC, where, where the author of Judges summarizing the spiritual apathy of God's people in this horrific way, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the same way, nearly three to four hundred years later, the people of Israel here in chapter seven continued to compromise God's righteous standard by doing what was right in their eyes as well. And they did it to the point that they didn't even recognize the severity of their sin and their desperate need for God. Historically, 733 BC, there was this initial onslaught from the Assyrian invasion. And it seems as though only one tribe's land, Ephraim, and the nation's capital, Samaria, were, were left standing and intact. In their eyes, they viewed themselves as strong, that they were independent, and they were protected by their mighty army. All on them, right? But in God's divine perspective, what did He see? When He looked at His people, He didn't see a strong, independent people. Instead, he saw a weak, lost, and prideful people mired by their sin. The first thing that God points out here in this text is how their civil order has broken down because they have tolerated sin of every kind. Verse 1 explains that they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. See, their, their society was defined by rampant crime, by cheaters, by thieves, by burglars, and outlaws who raid the streets. And just as he had done earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, Hosea implicitly references the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. 
explaining that they have forgotten God's law, God's commands for them. And in so doing, forgetting that, they have sinned against God and they have sinned against each other. As one scholar writes, the law has been forgotten and the civil justice is nowhere to be found. And as a result, God says that when he looks at Israel, all he sees is guilt. There is no atonement to cover their sin. In fact, when Hosea explains verse 2 that Israel's sinful deeds surround them, he's not communicating that Israel is overcome with crime. It's not saying that. Instead, Hosea is saying that no matter what vantage point that God looks upon his people Israel, no matter which direction, no matter what perspective, the only visible thing is the sin that engulfs them. Again, what is this cause of this departure from from God? How did they depart from God and His ways and His commands? This text says that it was the corruption of the spiritual and national leaders, the priests and the kings. We already talked about this in chapter 4, but Hosea called out the priests. He went to the priests first, you could say the worship leaders, the temple leaders at the time for their corruption and how they led Israel astray in true, undefiled, holy worship unto God. Now, here in chapter 7, Hosea turns his attention to the national leaders, the kings in their court. Not only are the higher-ups of society doing nothing to stop the king from his corruption, but they relish in the opportunity to join him in his debauchery. Hosea explains they are all adulterers. This most certainly speaks of their spiritual unfaithfulness, but it also speaks of their sexual sin added to their drunken debauchery. And not only are they enticing one another into a life of debauchery, they're also flattering the king in his sin. This idea of making the king glad, gladdening the king, only buys them time to plot against him and eventually stabbing him in the back. Sadly, we see this recorded time and time again in the disturbing history of Israel's kings during Hosea's time. How did the king find its next successor? It was through assassination. King after king came into power through assassination after assassination. One king only lasted one month before he was assassinated, and a new king came underneath him. We see this all in 2 Kings chapter 15. This was the king, this was the king's court during the time of Hosea's life. This evidenced the instability of the nation due to their sin. And this is the first of those word pictures that we see, possibly six or seven of them here in just in chapter seven alone. Hosea first uses this vivid metaphor of a baker and a heated oven in verses four through seven in order to describe the king's court and their sin even further. He explains this first. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Like a fire that was not kept under control and never went out, their scheming and their corruption was endless. In fact, it became this raging fire through their sinful passions and their their political uh, power politics. 
And like the irresponsible baker, who some scholars believe that he's communicating that the baker just fell asleep, (laughs) this king does not fulfill his role as their king. He does not lead them in right worship to God. Instead, he has indulged himself in his sin with the rest of his court, and he has allowed evil and debauchery to flourish. This, This understanding of being leavened, it has grown within the nation of Israel. And with all this evil, both past and present, God makes an observation with disgust. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. You see, they, they lacked a knowledge of who God is and their covenant relationship with Him. I, ironically, they had forgotten that God remembers their sin. As God looked upon Israel, He could only see an out-of-control oven and how it never stopped producing evil. For Israel, these sins were considered normal, acceptable, and common according to their current society. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges writes this, the sin of worldliness is simply accepting and going along with the views and practices of society around us without discerning if they are biblical. Bridges continues and says, but our goal, if you're a Christian, our goal as Christians should be to grow more in our conscious awareness that every moment of our lives is lived in the presence of God, that we are responsible to Him and dependent on Him. Again, when man's standard of sin is formed by society and cultural norms rather than God's holy word, Not only will they become more callous towards true sin, but they somehow believe that God isn't paying attention to them. I agree with one scholar, R.D. Phillips, when he writes, long practice in sin, long practice in iniquity, it had calloused the people's hearts to a point at which the very concept of sin no longer held meaning. And since they couldn't even recognize sin in their own lives, they had no impulse to humble themselves before the Lord. Verse 7 reveals the frustration of God, explaining all the kings have fallen, and none of them, none of them calls upon me. Sadly, Israel lacked a true understanding of God and a proper understanding of their sin. What, What can Christians do today? When we look back on this text, roughly 2,700 years ago, when we look back here, what can Christians today do to maintain a true understanding of God and a proper understanding of our sin? This is your next blank. This is my exhortation for you. My first exhortation, Christian, to you this morning is grow in love. Okay, grow in love and knowledge of God through the study of His Word, the Bible. Again, grow in love and knowledge of God through the study of His Word, the Bible. Christian, understand that you can't properly grow in the knowledge of God without growing in love of Him and others within His church. 
just as a quick aside, working at a Christian school on an island, I have seen many a students that would try to attain a better knowledge of God, some even ace their finals in these classes, without ever growing in love of Him. It's certainly possible, but it's not why God has given us His Word. We are to grow in love and knowledge of God together. To better explain this point, let me clarify what I mean when I say study His Word. This is not simply reading to read. I'm not referring to speed reading through the Bible to fulfill some sort of year-long reading plan. Although reading plans can be good, I do not prefer to suggest that this is a great way to study the Bible. And I'm not referring either to hollow memorization of Scripture. If you're an Awana buff, good job. But again, memorizing Scripture just to memorize Scripture is not studying Scripture. What do I mean? I'm not referring to dry reading passages from the Bible without proper context. And again, we don't read the Bible simply out of obligation. We feel like we have to. Nor do we read the Bible to become conceited with factual knowledge, to just prep for our next debate. This is where we can make a distinction between simply reading the Bible and truly studying it, living in it, dwelling in it. We study the Bible to grow in our love and our knowledge of God. This type of study goes beyond dry reading. Instead, this marks, what marks this reader is their desire to maintain and marinate in the text and study its contextual background. It means processing and praying through each passage with a heart that desires to know God in humility, asking questions like, what does obedience look like? What would a heart for God look like? This type of studying is not only formative, it is transformative. This type of studying humbles, it doesn't puff up. This type of studying rightly informs us of our sin and our constant need for God, but it also transforms us according to His Spirit's work in our life to make us more and more like Christ. Once again, Christian, maintain a true understanding of God and a proper understanding of sin by growing in love and knowledge of God through the study of His Word. We're going to have a, another point that's very much connected to this, so, so we'll kind of put a pin in this. We'll come right back to it. But let's hit first the second characteristic of the Christian life. According to Hosea chapter 7, it says this, true faith and repentance come from humility before God, and not only humility, but satisfaction in what He provides, satisfaction in His provision. You know, the opposite is also, also true. If, if one is prideful before God, and is satisfied, or you could sort of say, not satisfied with just himself, but unsatisfied with what God alone can provide, it's doubtful that they'll understand true faith and true repentance. It's doubtful that they'll understand their need for God. For instance, let's backtrack some years, but for instance, after Israel failed to believe in God's provision of the promised land back in Numbers chapter 13, 
they were to face the punishment of wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years. And yet, while they were still facing the punishment that they had earned for themselves, what did God do to still show His love for them? Not only was the punishment His love for them because He didn't give up on them and walk away, but what did He do? He continued to graciously and miraculously provide food and water for them daily. But after some time, the people of Israel became impatient with God in their punishment. In fact, they began to speak against Him and the leader that God put in charge of them, Moses. Out of the people's pride, again, while they're being punished, out of their pride, they believed that they knew better than God, and they were dissatisfied with the food that God had miraculously been providing for them every day. So, in their ungratefulness, what did they do? They called the food that God provided for them as utterly degrading, literally worthless. Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. They abhorred God and His love and His provision for them. God, in response, He sent fiery serpents on them, the text says, and, and out of fear, what did they do when they were getting bit? They cried out to Moses. They didn't cry out to God. They cried out to Moses, Moses, you pray for us. Tell God to stop. Moses prayed to God, and God instructed Moses to make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. As strange as this sounds, Moses obeyed God. And if the people weren't humbled by the fact that only God could save them with this strange strategy from these poisonous snake bites, if the people weren't satisfied with God's plan of deliverance here, it is likely that they turned to other sources of help to survive, which ironically would lead to their death. Sadly, the tragic history of Israel teaches us that true Christian repentance involves both the turning away from sin and turning towards God. When we miss that last part, part turning towards God, we will naturally turn back to a different form of sin. This is why I was talking to a friend uh, who was kind of in AA meetings, uh, and he became a Christian through these AA meetings, and he started to say, you know, what's really strange is a lot of the methods that we're being taught are very human-centered. We talk about God a lot, but it's on our own works, and he got frustrated, and he left the group. Praise God that he's still remaining uh, away from that, that sin in his life. But what he noticed was, again, this problem with them teaching repentance. They taught the right things, but not in their principles. For them, it was turn away from their sin, and by their own willpower, they will be clean. But what were they learning in Bible study periods was that, no, they turn away from sin that so entangles them, and they turn towards God. He said that they, he didn't see enough of the turning towards God, which is why he had to leave. For us today, we see kind of the same lesson with Israel and the horrific history of Israel is that they continue to try to turn away from sin, but without turning to God, they continue to fall 
back into their sinful ways. We see the same lesson displayed here in verses 8 through 12. Israel did not have true faith and repentance in God's power to save. Instead, driven by their pride to fend for themselves, to take care of their problems, to take care of their sin, dissatisfied with God's way, what did they do? Where did they turn instead? Instead of turning to God, they ran to a multitude of ever-changing alliances with other nations. They ran to neighboring enemy nations for help rather than God. In verse 8, Hosea explains, Ephraim, referring to the northern kingdom of Israel, mixes himself with the peoples. Israel has sought the provision and protection of foreign nations rather than living out their status as God's chosen people, living in holiness and pure worship unto God. And because they tried to assimilate themselves into pagan culture, they were disfigured like a half-baked cake. Hosea uses this second vivid metaphor of a half-baked cake to again describe how Israel's leaders have compromised their responsibilities. These leaders have become so lax in their duties that they have allowed syncretism into their culture, into their politics, and into their worship. I like how one scholar words it, like a pita loaf that had not been flipped. Israel was hot and hard on one side, but cold and mushy on the other. Thus, its political strategy was neither agreeable to its neighbors, nor it was appealing to God. Like the church in Laodicea, Israel was neither hot nor cold and detestable to the Lord. In fact, it's because they blended their policies with other nations, they continued to squander what little power they had left. And sadly, verse 9 explains that this allowed strangers, these other nations, to devour Israel's strength, and they know it not. Based on the Hebrew grammar, it seems that Hosea uses a mixed metaphor here in verse 9. He pairs this image of a half-baked cake to that of a gray-haired man, or some scholars believe a moldy cake. He explains that gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. In this mixed metaphor, Hosea continues to describe the failure of the kings that are in leadership. The kings of Israel have acted like a foolish man or a moldy cake who has failed to take stock of their affairs as they age. Unaware of the ruin that surrounds him, he tragically believes that he is strong. And in his boasting, he is unaware of his need to humble himself before the Lord in eager repentance. And then again, if these pictures aren't interesting enough, Hosea adds another one. Hosea then shifts again to another vivid metaphor, this time a foolish dove that doesn't know his way home. Although these birds, doves, were were known for being peaceful, they were also well known for their lack of wit. They did not make good homing birds. (laughs) Why? Because they flew wherever the wind would take them with no sense of where home was. So Hosea explains, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. This expands Hosea's vivid metaphor, his mixed metaphor. Not only are these kings irresponsible to carry out their God-given duties, not only are they faithless and unrepentant, but they're also desperate to find help in all the wrong places. Following this metaphor, 
of the kings needing to, to fly back home, what is he saying? He's saying that this is in reference to God. Instead of going back home to God, they fly to the enemies. Instead, like a foolish dove, they irrationally call out to Egypt, the people that they were saved from historically. They call out to their enemies instead of God. They call out to these other nations rather than the true king. No one can provide the type of satisfaction, stability, the type of security and salvation that God alone can provide. But Israel had to learn this lesson the hard way because of their faithlessness and their arrogance. In verse 12, the net of discipline is thrown out in love. As God explains yet again that he will not give up on his covenant people. He will not abandon them. He will not wait for a new people. Instead, and this is the good news, he will discipline them. He will catch them in their sinfulness. He will discipline them in order that he can restore them unto himself. This net spoke of how God will humble them through the Assyrian captivity and how it would grow their desire to see his promises of restoration and reconciliation unto him. And even in the most difficult years of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, God was still leading Israel to true faith and repentance by humbling them and teaching them to be satisfied in what he alone can provide for them. Again, true faith and repentance comes from humility before God and satisfaction in his provision. Christian, my second exhortation is brief. Pursue God in humility and delight in Him above all. Again, pursue God in humility and delight in Him above all. Do you pride yourself on things that separate you from God? Like Israel, do you pride yourself on the riches that you think you have, like the kings of Israel did? Do you you feel like you're a self-made man, like the kings of Israel? Do Do you pride yourself on your prosperity, your plans for the future? Do you pride yourself on your abilities? Are you like the unfaithful Laodiceans who believed that they needed nothing? They had everything that they needed apart from God. Do do you attempt to delight in things and flit back and forth from one thing to the next only to find yourself ultimately unsatisfied? Do you delight in relationships, family or romantic relationships or friend relationships that only seem to take you farther and farther away from a right relationship with God? Do you pursue all the wrong things? Or do you pursue God? Christian, heed these words from the psalmist when he writes, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and be friend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Christian, once again, pursue God in humility and delight in him above all. The third characteristic of the Christian life found in chapter seven of Hosea is this. The closer Christians are to God, 
And the, the closer Christians are to God, the more they delight in Him. And, and it's this correct theology and true worship. Again, we, we see this delighting in Him through two actions, through delighting in correct theology and delighting in true worship of Him. We see this in verses 13 through 16. Something that I love about my time here at Wiley Baptist Church uh, is for the past three years, I have been blessed to see God work, uh, at work in the lives of many of our members, many of our visitors, and in our community. You know, it, it's been such a joy to talk to many of you and to hear how your love for God has grown, how it has even deepened through the study of the Bible together. I love that. Some of my fondest memories uh, have been, though, with, with uh, our Monday night crew. One of these memories, one, one of them was seeing the look on, uh, on Gary's face uh, and hearing Cam groan online in agony uh, during a couple of our workshops. And let, let me preface this real quick. Uh, let me preface by saying that in these particular workshops that we're doing on, the, on these Monday nights, we're discussing uh, what it means to properly interpret the Bible uh, by watching these short clips of people that were improperly using the Bible. And by watching these false teachers, these spiritual hucksters and religious phonies, we were able to have these great discussions together as a class about the need for discipleship in the local church, but also having correct theology as Christians. And so during these classes, uh, I, I couldn't help but smile uh, when I saw Gary's wide-eyed reaction uh, and facepalm uh, and even Cam gro groaning online uh, just in pure agony, listening to these videos, even the first few seconds of the first video clip. You know, for me, reactions like this, and it wasn't just Cam and Gary, many people in the class, for me, these reactions, coupled with the many conversations I've had with these people, Evidence a heart that delights in the truth of God's word, rightly interpreted and rightly communicated. And I love that. Sadly, the same could not be said of the people in Hosea's day. Israel did not delight in true knowledge of who God is. Therefore, not only were their hearts far away from God, but how they worshiped was unimaginably far from God. It perfectly revealed just how spiritually confused they really were. God's response to their sin and their departure from true faith showed both his justice and his mercy. In his justice, he exclaimed, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. But in his mercy, he answers, I would redeem them. We see this tension throughout Hosea. God, who is perfectly just, will not let sin slide. But in his absolute mercy, he is ready to redeem them. But in what ways are the people running away from God's mercy? How are they rebelling against God's forgiveness? Verse 13 concludes with this final verdict from God. They speak lies against me. These lies most likely refer to Israel's syncretism. Given the context, it's possible the lies somehow communicated that God approved their syncretistic worship. Sadly, they were defending their sin. 
They have abandoned true worship unto God and replaced it with this diluted version of it. They mixed, they, they mixed their hollow worship unto God, this mechanical, perfunctory worship unto God with appalling acts of pagan worship, and they're defending it. Because of their defiled worship and their sin-ridden culture, they had lost sight of who God is and what He had done for them. God cries out, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves and they rebel against me. This phrase, wail upon their beds, has many different interpretations, but most likely it's referring to this ecstatic ritual wailing that they had practiced in Baal worship. As one scholar writes, this is not unlike some Christian worship today that mimics secular spirituality and emotionalistic therapy. They're using things that they're familiar with, thinking that it's okay to worship God this way. Baal cult worship is implied by the grain and wine they desire from their pagan gods. They want God to provide the same way as these false gods. And so they're going to do the same thing they do to invoke those gods to act. For this, it says that they gash themselves, self-laceration, because surely this is what God wants. Surely He will act and provide for us the same way that we get the other guys to do it. And the conclusion is, because they have embraced false theology and pagan worship, they have rebelled against the true knowledge of God and have therefore become pagans themselves. Hosea uses this final vivid metaphor to describe God's lament of Israel's sin. God first recalls how He had once fought for them. He had trained them to defend themselves according to His covenant, but instead of following their training, they devise evil against Him. Like a treacherous bow that cannot, ch- cannot shoot in the right direction, Israel has missed their mark. They did not return upward to the things of God. They shot everywhere else. They were to inherit all that God was promising to Moses and the people of the Exodus, but because they failed to turn to God in repentance and undefiled worship, they could not return to God. Sadly, this chapter ends in another indictment against Israel's leadership for the spiritual depravity of the people. God again calls to the Israelite leaders for their insolence and disregard for the spiritual state of the nation. And because of this, it was unavoidable that their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. Additionally, the foreign allies that had once run or that uh, that they had once run after, these enemies will now mock them. In this sense, God will reverse their former victory over Egypt in this great exodus that we remember from hundreds of years ago. Instead, they will be the laughingstock in all the land of Egypt once their nation falls. Christian, what what must we do to maintain a closeness to God? What, what, What must we do to grow even closer in our relationship with Him? Christian, my final exhortation this morning is this. Embrace 
correct theology and true worship through discipleship together. Again, embrace correct theology and true worship through discipleship together. Again, Israel rebelled against true knowledge of God and undefiled worship unto Him. Because of this, they had departed from God and no longer knew who He is and all that He had done and will do for them. Brother and sister in Christ, do you feel as though there could be a similar departure in your life? Do you feel like, like you have strayed away from your relationship with God? As the, the busyness of life becomes so overbearing that it feels like drawing near to God has become this unbearable burden. I can't simply stack that on top of everything. Christian, have you become tangled up in worldly passions and become lost in its empty promises? Maybe for others, have, have you allowed past church hurt to allow yourself to grow farther and farther away from a right relationship with God and also a loving relationship with this body of Christ? Christian, have you lost sight of the joy of your salvation? This is a range of questions. In response to questions like these, Spurgeon famously answers this. I love this. He says, oh, there is a contemplating Christ, or in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a passing away for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can comfort so much a soul, so calm the dwelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak to the winds of trial as a devout reflection upon the subject of God himself. Christian, grow closer to God through embracing correct theology and true worship and discipleship together. And no notice I didn't highlight an individualistic effort alone. We grow in knowledge of God together as his church. We, we grow closer to God together through the study of the word together. And it entails growing in love for his church. Just as it's impossible to truly love God while at the same time despising God's word, it's impossible to truly love God and despise growing together as his church. If you haven't begun joining us here at this local church in discipleship, we'd love to have you. Come and talk to me or Pastor Matt. We have many different opportunities for you to grow as a disciple of Christ with this body of Christ. 
Again, Christians delight in correct theology and true worship by embracing correct theology and true worship through discipleship together. This morning, you have heard many instructions that were directed at Christians, but if you are not a Christian this morning, maybe you're even looking for understanding, I want to remind you that it's impossible to follow these instructions on your own abilities. As I mentioned in one of my previous points, true faith and repentance comes through humility before God and satisfaction in what He provides. Perhaps you feel the weight of your sin, and you realize that like Israel, you have run after everything else under the sun and still been found wanting. The good news that we see in the gospel is that God did not give up on His sinful people. He didn't wait around for a better people, and He didn't wait for His people to stop sinning first in order to step in and save them. No, despite the growing sinfulness of man, 700 years after Hosea's time, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem sinners unto Himself through His death on the cross. That anyone who would trust in Christ would turn away from their sin in true faith and repentance and turn unto God, that they would be saved from sin and its ruin and brought to a new life in Jesus Christ. Friend, you are not beyond hope. You can have Christ today. Turn to Him this morning in humility, admitting that even in your best efforts, you cannot save yourself. Know the Lord and experience what it means to be in right relationship with God through Christ today. Friend, turn to Christ he will have you. Faulting Christian, uh, perhaps like Israel, you were once in this close relationship with God, but it seems like it's been years since you felt his nearness. Maybe due to certain life choices, you feel as though there's nothing left to return to. Perhaps you see, even in yourself, this need to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and perhaps you see the need to grow in community within the church, but you feel a sense of uncertainty, uh, uncertainty, shame, maybe even pressure, regret, and hopelessness if you even try. Brother and sister in Christ, if this is you, take heart to know that a healthy church should always celebrate whenever a repentant brother or sister returns to the Lord. The heartbeat of our church family should echo the call of Hosea when he said, come, let us return to the Lord. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Let us know his going out is sure, uh, sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Christian, again, for this, we must grow in love and knowledge of God through the study of His Word. We must pursue God in humility and delight in Him above all, and we must embrace correct theology and true worship through discipleship together. This is how we uphold God's standard of sin and holiness. 
This is how we humbly come to Christ in true faith and repentance. And this is how we grow closer to God as his church. Praise God for his word.